All right. We are back into our series on being God's faithful presence, how we experience his faithful presence in our lives, and then we become it in the world, and we do so in the close circle of the church, the dotted circle of our homes and our houses, and in the half circle of the world. That everywhere we go, we are called to be God's faithful presence in a way that invites the world to experience who God is and what he's about through their interactions with us. Um, and we're going through a number of practices that, that talk about how we um, do that in different ways. And this week we're talking about the practice of reconciliation, uh, of reconciliation. Um, if you're not sure what reconciliation is, it means fixing a broken relationship. It means saying, I'm sorry, you're getting someone else that needs to say sorry to you, to say sorry to you, and then accepting that apology and, and making amends, right? That's reconciliation. Um, there's a lot of arguments, a lot of different types of arguments that require reconciliation. I was trying to think through a lot of these this week. Um, one of them is, you did something bad or wrong to me. Well, we've got to sort that out. We've got to figure out how to get on the other side of that argument. Uh, there's the, I did something bad or wrong to you kind of argument. We've got to sort that out. Uh, there is the, how many times do I have to tell you to quit doing what you're doing argument. Uh, there's an argument that's, there's two opinions in this argument, and yours is wrong, and the quicker you realize it, the quicker we can get to the other side of this problem. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that one. Uh, there's the fool me twice, shame on me argument. The, how many times do I have to tell you to quit doing that argument? The, it might not be illegal or immoral, but we don't do that in this house. You ever had, that's probably more of a parental one. You've got to tell your kids, uh, I don't care what everyone else says or does, we don't do that here. Uh, there's the argument that starts with, uh, you know, hey, honey, I've noticed a hole in our bank account, and I'd like for you to plug that up, please, argument. Some of you might be familiar with that one. Uh, there's the, your actions speak louder than your words. So even though you're saying the wrong thing, you're saying the right thing, you're doing the wrong thing. So why don't you get it to all match argument? There's arguments that are based on the idea of sticks and stones may break my bones, but you say really mean things and you need to stop it argument. Uh, there's the arguments that start with uh, my wife puts the miss in misunderstanding. Some of you may be familiar with that one. Uh, or some of you may be more familiar with the argument of uh, my husband puts the guy in may need extra guidance. That's an argument that some of us get in from time to time. Or, or perhaps the how many times am I going to have to tell you to stop doing the things you're doing wrong? As soon as you get on board with doing things my way, the world is going to be a better place argument. All of these different arguments kind of are there to remind us that if you're going to live in some way in this world with a relationship with some other human, arguments and disagreement and conflict is coming. It is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. It's why it's so important when you find the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with that you go get premarital counseling from someone who's walked through that path before and can say, there's some troublesome times ahead. And I want to help you kind of learn the skills and learn some of the things that are coming so that you can be ready when you get to the rough waters that is marriage and family. And you don't have to be married to experience that. Uh, you could be a single person, but if you have a job that brings you in contact with other humans, conflict is coming. It is built into the world that we live in. 
And, and so if you come to me uh, in my office for pastoral kind of counseling for your family, and you say, listen, we're just fighting and arguing all the time. What are we going to do about it? We're going to get into some practical strategies, some techniques about listening and uh, brainstorming and solving your problems so that you can get on the other side of them. But today, as we think about what it means to be people of reconciliation, what I really want to do is impress upon you two things. And the first one is this. It's not techniques and strategies. The first one is this, is is that understanding if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to know that reconciliation and repairing broken relationships is one of the ultimate goals of Jesus Christ. It is central and core to who he is and what he's about. And the second thing is this, if you're going to be his disciple, it has to be central and core to who you are. That you become a peacemaker, a reconciler, someone who is in the business of making whole relationships that are broken. And when we look at Jesus, we're going to see so many ways that he demonstrates this priority in his life and his teaching and his ministry. And I want to start out in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, starting in, uh, in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. It's really practical stuff. Well, how do we do it? Do we get the whole church and start with a huge intervention? Uh, hey, glad you came to Bible class today. We've all been talking about your sin, and we'd like to address it before we get to the prayer request for the week. No! You don't do a major intervention when a minor one might get the job done. So Jesus says, just between the two of you, go to them and point out their fault. If they listen to you, you've won them over. You were able with minor surgery to fix a sin issue. But if that doesn't work, escalate. If they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Jesus says, listen, here's the thing. If your brother or sister has a sin problem, you have a choice to do nothing or do something. That's the first choice you have to make. I can leave you in your mistaken way of life, or I can try and do something about it. Jesus' instruction is don't ignore sin in your brother or sister. Help them get out of it. Why? Because the goal is to save them from their wrong living so that they can be in a right relationship with God. The goal is reconciliation. So you have to go to them in the smallest way possible that might work first and then slowly increasing the level of pressure and accountability on them. And he even goes so far as to say, at some point you may need to treat them as a pagan or a tax collector, as an outsider to your your family and your community. And we think, well, that sounds harsh. That sounds cruel. Why would Jesus say you should treat people like an outsider? Because the goal is to get them to behave like insiders. And it's to help them deal with their wrong actions, wrong thoughts, wrong ideas, and get them back into a reconciled relationship with God. Well, that's a good goal. 
He says, you may have to, to turn up the pressure on them a little bit to get them to change their behavior. And then he says this thing, where two or three gather in my name. And it's within this context of doing reconciliation work, of doing uh, the work of helping people deal with their sin problems. Jesus says, listen, here's what you need to know. If you are going to do this work, I will be there with you. I'll be there with you. I had times before uh, where I had people coming in with all kinds of conflict in their family, and, and I thought about, and I, I just can't ever get the, I, maybe I'll start doing this. I think it would be helpful if when we were engaging in conflict, and we knew there were going to be four people in conflict, we set up five chairs. And when you walk into the room, and the four of you sit down in the five chairs, and you look over and say, well, who's that chair for? You say, it's a reminder to us that if we're doing the work of working through our problems, Jesus is here in the room. Jesus shows up to help us do the work of reconciliation. And so that's his chair. It seems like you'd behave a little bit better in the middle of the argument if you kind of, you know, someone starts yelling at you and they just kind of look at the chair, look back at you, look at the chair. It's an object lesson, but it's a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. And then Jesus continues with this parable that's just incredible. Later, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And then he says what he thinks is an outlandishly high number. Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Carter and I were talking about this earlier, and he goes, so at 76, you tell him, last warning. <laughs> no. No, what Jesus is doing is just picking an outrageously high number that you would lose count on the way to. Be the kind of people who aren't counting how many times you've had to forgive somebody. You're just in the business of one more time. That is what reconciliation is about. And he tells this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. He's going to sell this whole family and everything they own. And, and by the way, it's not going to come close to touching the debt of 10,000 bags of gold. If 77 is an unbelievable, uncountable number of times to forgive them, 10,000 bags of gold is an absurd amount of money that cannot be repaid even by selling this man, his wife, and his children and all that they own. But at this, the servant fell on his knees before the king. And listen to what his request is. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Will this servant pay back 10,000 bags of gold? No. That's absurd. There's no chance this guy can pay back 10,000 bags of gold. But that's what he's begging for is just the opportunity to pay it back. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. The, the servant's request was, let me spend the rest of my life trying to pay back a debt that I cannot repay. Just please let me keep trying to pay it back. I'll work harder. I'll do more. I'll be better. And the master says, you know what? I'm just going to forgive the debt. 
I'm not going to make you a slave to me for the rest of your life. I'm going to set you completely free from this unpayable debt. And when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. A debt of a hundred silver coins compared to a hundred or ten thousand bags of gold. It's nothing in comparison to what he had been forgiven. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Master called the servant in and he says, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ouch. So here's what you have to do. You have to ask yourself, when the king that is God forgave a debt that you could never pay back, has any of, have any of you had a debt paid for in your life that you couldn't pay back? And he forgave you that debt. And he set you free from an unbelievable weight of debt. And you go out into the world, and the first time a brother or sister comes across you, and they wrong you, you look at them and say, well, I can't forgive you for that. What am I going to do? I just overlook what you've done to me? The debt that you have towards me, I should just forgive you? Yeah. Why? Because you've already been forgiven for so much. How could you not pay it forward? when given an opportunity to forgive someone else. Our king is in the business of debt forgiveness. And if we're going to be his servants and his people, we need to join the family business of debt forgiveness. So when do we do it? Do we do it when it's easy? Do we do it when it's convenient? Uh, Romans is writing about how Jesus gives us an example in that too. Romans chapter 5 uh, let's start in verse 6, says this. You see, at just the right time, you know when the right time is to forgive someone? In my experience, it's when they start groveling, right? It's when they pay you back everything they owe and interest. Here's what Jesus considers to be the right time to forgive someone. You see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So does Jesus wait until we are a big enough deal to be worthy of dying for? Does he wait until we're good enough? Does he wait until we're righteous enough? While we were powerless... Jesus saved us. While we were ungodly, Jesus saved us. He didn't do it because we were righteous enough or good enough or we were begging for it enough. God showed us love when Christ died for us while we were still sinners. 
There's so many people that think that they're going to start living in the right life as Christians when they, they you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to really give my life to Jesus as soon as I get good enough. Jesus didn't wait that long. Jesus says, listen, you're a sinner and you're not going to get good enough. You can't pay back the debt you owe me, so I'm just going to cancel it while you're still a sinner. It goes on and it says, while we were still God's enemies, Jesus died to save us. God's enemies. And that's such a different standard for reconciliation and forgiveness than we tend to have in our lives. Uh, if you want to know uh, about how humans think about forgiveness, um, wait till your kids get in a fight, and then you go, hey, get in here, what's going on? And they're going to come in, and they're going to tell you exactly who the sinner is, right? <laughs> and they're going to use the same arguments that adults use. Children are just more honest about it. So here's what they say. They deserve to be punished because they did something wrong. They come in and they say, he started it. Go, no, 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 she started it. Because that's what matters when now that we get to the table of reconciliation is who started it. Because that's the person who has the greater debt of, of working it out. They need to learn their lesson. Dad, you teach them to not do this and behave this way again. They didn't even say they're sorry. Hey, listen, I need you guys to forgive each other and work it out. Not till they say, I'm sorry. I'm not going to forgive them until they get punished for the things they do wrong. These are the way kids have an argument. And as parents, you want to go crazy because you're like, this argument is about nothing. This is so stupid. I don't even understand what you're talking about. Can you just agree to start getting along with each other and forgive each other for whatever happened upstairs? I don't know what happened. And they go, I'm not going to forgive them till we make it right, till we sort it out, till I get my revenge, till you punish them, till they've learned their lesson, till they grovel and apologize. And suddenly it starts to sound like marital counseling, right? Is that what God worries about in conflict with us? Does he wait till we've learned our lesson to send his son to die on the cross for us? Does he wait until we've paid the price for all the things we've done wrong before he comes in and cancels the debt? Does God look at us and say, you started it until you make this right. I'm not going to come down there and fix anything else. He doesn't. God doesn't do any of those things. God, the reconciler, shows up and he wants to know, do I love them enough to save them? And the answer is yes, before we even do anything right. God asks the question, do I love them enough to suffer on their behalf so that they can be restored? And the answer is yes, before we even do anything to deserve it. God's question when he shows up is, can I fix the relationship that they broke? And if the answer is yes, he does it. He gets in the business of the fixing and the restoring and the making things whole. And then we say that we want to be his children but we're not in the business of restoring broken relationships. We're not paying attention to who our Father's heart is and to what Jesus' life and ministry was all about. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Paul describes it this way. He says, listen, if you've received any encouragement, this is Philippians 2, from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, 
having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He says, listen, if you've received any blessing from being in Jesus, here's what you need to do. And as disciples of Jesus, we have certainly received the blessing of being in Jesus. We've had the king who forgave us the debt of 10,000 bags of gold, and he loves us, and he brings us into his feast and his kingdom and his table and all of the benefits that come with that. Paul says, if you've received any of those, I mean, just any of those, not to mention all of those, then here's what you do. You become like-minded with one love and one spirit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about the argument that you have that's outstanding, that's continuing to, I don't mean it's outstanding, it's great, but it's, it's one that's unresolved right. in your life right now. And you're thinking, man, I hope he's not talking about that relationship that's broken in my life right now. Let me ask you this. In that relationship that you have in your life that's broken right now, could it get better if you let go of your selfish ambition and put the interest of the other person above yourself? Could it get better? Well, but what about my interest? Don't worry about your interest. Put their interest ahead of yourself. Well, why in the world would I want to do that? I want mine, I want my interest, I want my benefit, I want my value. Well, here's the thing, are you in Jesus Christ? Yeah, here's what he did. He was in the very nature God. Are you? Well, no, but he was in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Well, but in my argument that I've got with my coworker, friend, neighbor, family member, whoever it is in your life, with my spouse, I, I don't want to put my interests aside. I don't want to just become nothing and obedient to this whole, like, surrender yourself and let them have their way. Okay. Are you glad that Jesus did for you? Well, yeah. Did Jesus look after his interests or yours? Mine. Did Jesus value himself more or you more? Me. And did he cancel a debt that you could never work hard enough to pay? Yeah then don't you think you ought to be the kind of servant that gives that kind of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to the next person that comes and wrongs you? Well, but if I do that, if I do that, won't I just get walked on my whole life? Won't I just get taken advantage of? Well, let's look at what happened to Jesus. Didn't he get beat, abused, crucified, uh, treated like trash? Yes. Did that mean that he got walked on for the rest of his life? Therefore, God exalted him, talking about Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, he doesn't get walked all over. He gets exalted to the highest place to whom every knee should bow because God sorts it out. 
But God, if I just forgive everyone and reconcile to everyone and extend this incredible grace to everyone, won't I get walked all over? And God says, don't worry about it. I'll sort it out. Don't worry about it. You get your relationships right. Sometimes that means suffering. Sometimes it means emptying. Sometimes it means forgiving. I'll make sure that you don't get trampled for eternity because I'm going to exalt you with Jesus, who is the firstborn of the resurrected. He's going to be the one who leads the way, and you get to go with him. That's what the kingdom is all about. And we do all of this so that we might have a relationship with others and they might have a relationship with God. And we're constantly in the business of fixing broken relationships. Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, is teaching and he's talking about anger and uh, he's talking about just getting furious with someone. And he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. It's a good law. It's a good command. I've been fortunate to never have violated it. I'm very anti-murder. I think you should be too. Uh, very proud to tell you, not a murderer. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I like that command less than the murder one. Because murder I can very easily avoid, but not being angry with you, not being frustrated with you, not calling you an idiot. He says, I tell you, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He says, listen, don't you know that your broken relationships could cost you your soul? If that's true, what do we do about it? Well, he tells us, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. The way we would say this today is, if you go to worship and you're worshiping God, and partway through worship, you realize that you've got a broken relationship with your brother or sister in Christ, you need to stop worshiping and immediately go and work out that broken relationship. And you get to where it's a reconciled, healed relationship, and then you go back to worship. Because that's when God's ready for your offering that you bring Him. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. His advice is, you shouldn't be people that have to go to court to have a judge decide that this person wins or that person loses. You should be people that are so in the business of fixing broken relationships that you don't have to go to court. That on the way, someone says, hey, I'm suing you. And you say, I'm pretty sure that you and I can work this out, just the two of us. I'm pretty sure, uh, if, if not, we can find someone who can uh, manage this problem between the two of us. That comes up with the church in Corinth. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and, and there's been a problem where some of the Christians in Corinth have been suing each other and taking each other to pagan courts to have arguments decided between them. So Paul writes, he says, If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? 
Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, don't ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why do you say that, Paul? Why does a lawsuit between one Christian and another mean that we've been defeated already? And here's his answer. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Paul says, listen, here's, here's what you need to understand. Do not go to court in secular courts where pagan worldly judges will judge between you. Don't you know that if you're a son of, uh, and daughter of God, that if you're one of Jesus' siblings, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're eventually going to judge the entire creation. And you're going to go before a courthouse uh, with a pagan judge and let him decide between you? Shouldn't there be someone in your church who's wise enough, since you're eventually going to judge the entire creation, to settle matters between you? He says, you should not be settling your disagreements in court. Now, most of us in this room haven't sued each other often. It's not something we do. Um, we're not a very litigious church, I guess. I don't know. But here's what we do. It's today, so often, Christians air their grievances and arguments with one another in the court of public opinion. We get uh, out, we tell people at work about how someone at church did something we didn't like. We get on Facebook or social media and we tell the whole world how bad the church is. And we air our grievances with our Christian brothers and sisters in the court of public opinion, which is what Paul's talking about. Don't you know how much it shames the church to have your grievances aired in the court of public opinion so that pagans are settling disputes among you? It tells them, we don't have anyone wise enough to settle this among ourselves. But even more importantly than that, it tells them, I'm looking after my interests and not the interests of my brothers or sisters in Christ. So he asked, wouldn't you rather be wronged or cheated than to drag the church's dirty laundry into a worldly court? Paul, what are you even talking about? I don't want to be wronged. I don't want to be cheated. Why would I do that? Because you follow a risen Savior who was wronged and cheated to forgive your debt. A debt that you could never work hard enough to repay. And then you turn around and say, well, I'm not going to forgive this person for this little debt, even though you forgave me for that one that I could never, ever pay. And the king becomes furious when we behave that way. And he calls us in and he says, listen, I heard that I forgave you for all these things. And you wouldn't forgive someone else for this little thing. Is that true? 
Because if that's true, I'm going to throw you in jail to be tortured because you've got no part in my kingdom if you can't understand this. And so Paul says, listen, you guys are taking each other to court. You clearly have not learned the importance of reconciliation to being disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a totally different way of resolving problems that's rooted not in strategies or active listening or brainstorming. All those are tools that you can use to get there. But it's ultimately rooted in this reality that Jesus paid a debt I couldn't owe, so I should forgive smaller debts all along my life and all along the journey. And as I'm going and people wrong me, I shouldn't stand up and go, well, my interests, my value, my preferences, what I want, justice, uh, they started it, they haven't apologized. While we were still God's enemies, Jesus died to save us. Becomes the standard by which we have to do this reconciliation work. The question does need to be asked. Is there a time when we've done everything we can and the relationship is still broken that, that we're relieved from the duty of just going over and over and over again? And I want to offer you two ideas on this. Um, the first one is this. If you are in a relationship that is abusing you by saying you should continue to forgive me so that I can continue to do you harm, that's not what this story's about. If you're in an abusive relationship, true forgiveness should move the relationship towards healing and wholeness and restoration. If over and over again you continue to forgive someone and it is only doing harm and violence to you, forgiveness is broken here. And you need to find a safe person in a safe space and then after that, you start doing the healing work that, that this forgiveness is all about. But you may have to do it in a place separate and apart from the person who's been doing you harm. And the second thing I want to offer you is this, is that there will be some relationships that you do absolutely everything in your power to reconcile them. And for whatever reason, whether it's the limitations of that person's skills and abilities or their unwillingness to join you and, and meet you even a tenth of the way there that you're someday going to stand in front of Jesus and say, if Jesus were to ask you, did you do everything you could to reconcile that relationship, that, that you can say with a clean conscience, that relationship is broken, but Jesus, I did everything I could. You know what Jesus is going to say? He's going to say, you know what? I died on the cross to take care of everything else. There's forgiveness for you in your inability to bring reconciliation. There's mercy and grace and compassion for you in the fact that you couldn't make it work. But I'm so thankful that in my name, you did your best. And so there are times in relationships that we have to sort things out. In Scripture, uh, there's a time when Barnabas and Paul get in a big argument about whether John Mark should go on, with, uh, go on a mission trip with them. They cannot come to agreement. Because Paul's so mad that last time they went on a mission trip, John Mark checked out early. He says, I'm not taking a quitter with me. And Barnabas says, you've got to give him another chance. And Paul says, I'm not going to give him another chance. And so you know what they did? They formed two mission trips. Right. And they went their separate ways. And yet we see later that while they couldn't work it out then, what we see later is that when Paul is in prison, he writes and he says, please send John Mark to visit me. Yeah. It eventually got worked out. It eventually got reconciled. But sometimes 
You just need to be on a different mission trip than someone that's just a little bit too much for right now. God's got grace for us in all these moments. But it's when we become casual and cavalier and, and, and just kind of like, ah, I'm just going to throw this relationship away. I'm just going to have boundaries between me and them. I'm not going to worry about fixing the past. I'm just going to get myself somewhere where I can be happy and healthy and whole and not worry about my relationship with my brother or sister. That's when we've got a problem. Because Jesus left heaven and became nothing, even being obedient to the cross, so that we might be reconciled to the Father. And if we're going to be his disciples, we have to be willing to do extreme and incredible things to bring peace and reconciliation everywhere God sends us. Not casual about it, but intentional about it. Not flippant about it, but willing to do great things to fix relationships. So here's the word Jesus needs his disciples to hear today is blessed are the peacemakers. Where there is conflict, may God's disciples bring peace and resolution. If you look at the conversations you're having at church and home in the world and you think, man, everywhere I go, people seem to end up arguing. You're doing it wrong. You should be a source of peace. You should be a source of resolution. You should be someone who brings uh, healing where brokenness used to be. You should be someone who brings wholeness to where uh, there used to be uh, brokenness. And where brokenness is and resentment is, may the kingdom bring forgiveness. When the kingdom of God shows up and is God's faithful presence, a church and home in the world, there should be more peace than before we showed up. We should always leave it better. Seventy-seven times we should find ways to restore and heal and forgive. And I want to tell you today, if you're here today and you've never been reconciled to the Father, Jesus left heaven so that you could be. Jesus gave his life so that you could have life and have it to the fullest. Uh, Jesus came and, and was broken himself so that you might be made whole. And all of that was part of his reconciling work that he gives to us as a gift. And if you've never received that invitation to become a disciple of Jesus, to become a Christian, to become a believer, to become one of God's children, you are refusing to accept the greatest gift you've ever been offered. The gift to have your debt forgiven that you could not pay up if you tried for the rest of eternity so that you can become a person who forgives others going forward. If today's the day that you want to accept the cancellation of your debt and the healing that comes from it, please come forward as we stand and sing.